Hi, I'm James Neese. I'm a cinematographer from The Haunting of Bly Manor, and this is The Go Creative Show with Ben. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is James Neist, director of photography for the Netflix hit show, The Haunting of Bly Manor. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. There is so much to talk about. I cannot wait to get into it, especially how you embrace the darks and horror cinematography. And there's just so much there. And I'm excited to jump in. But before we do, just real quick, I want to thank our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. Find them at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And don't forget, GCS20 for 20% off of your purchase from MZ. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app. Search Go Creative Show anywhere and you'll find us. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, especially for exclusive content you don't see anywhere else right there at Go Creative Show's YouTube channel. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. The Haunting of Bly Manor is... It's a sequel to, or kind of in the same world as The Haunting of, what, what's the other show? Oh, it's The Haunting me. of Hill House. Ca- haunting of Hill House. So were you involved in The Haunting of Hill House at all? I was not. Um, the Haunting of Hill House was shot by Michael Fimignori, who's a longtime collaborator with uh, Mike Flanagan. Um, he did other movies with him, like Dr. Sleep, um, some of most of Michael's films, actually. Uh, I was brought in actually halfway through the the season for The Haunting of Bly Manor, mm. which has turned out to be a kind of a one-off. Uh, it was a sequel to some regards, but it's a completely different show. I think a lot of the core fan base was a little shocked at the differences, but I think it brought in a whole new fan base um, and kind of just showed a whole other side of Mike Flanagan and his creations. Did you get pushback? Do, do people actually complain about it? I mean, it seems like oh, yeah. to me when watching it, it's like, it seems like it's in the same world. But it's not necessarily two, you know, intertwined stories. Yeah, you know, it's really careful. You have to um, either be able to listen and, and read social media and let it slide off your back, or you can kind of, you know, swallow it with the rest of the, the um, pushback you get from people. I think there was a, a large fan base that did not care for The Haunting of Bly Manor. They were expecting a little bit more Haunting Hill House, a little bit scarier, um, the Haunting of Bly was a little bit more about relationships and a little delved deeper in about love and trust and um, deception and a lot of things like that. So there was a lot more layers in it, which I thought was really fascinating. Uh, it was even kind of hard to track as I first started to get involved with the project. I had to reread the scripts a couple of times and kind of understand what was happening because a lot of it happens um, in sort of a dreamscape. Uh, and then a lot of things are explained in episode eight that kind of ties it together. So people were waiting for, for some of this juicy material to to figure out what was going on. And it took them until episode eight. And then I think there was a lot of resolution for people and it started to resonate a lot more. I'm glad that you had brought up episode eight so quickly in the show because it's something I wanted to talk about. It's a major turning point or more of a revelation, let's say, in the, in the series, um, shot in black and white. It's kind of a departure from the rest of the season as far as the way that it looks. Talk to us about that decision, because that was one that you did shoot. Um, you did episode six to nine, right? That's correct, yes. Six to nine. So talk to me about episode eight. Was it always planned to be shot in black and white? It was always planned to be shot in black and white, and it's something that, um, among other things, attracted me to the projects. Uh, I find myself really gravitating towards traditional photography, um, old black and white stuff, uh, period pieces, especially. I'm always enamored by them, as a, not only as a viewer, but um, as a technician. I think it's really fun when you start getting into props and wardrobe and set deck and uh, camera styles, lenses, looks, and all those kind of things are, are really kind of fun. And it, to me, it's really um, the epitome of storytelling, right, is, is trying to convey a certain time period yeah. through all those textures. Um, so... So it was really attractive to me because I really wanted to sink my teeth into it. It was, it was um, really fun. And his, like the, the sets and all that were designed really, really well. And so they really helped convey those, those time periods. There is an episode eight kind of a transition between a couple hundred years um, in the life of the manor. And so it was kind of fun to be a part of that and see how it all came together and tried to lean on it lighting-wise. Um, we also started to introduce a little bit of color back into the into that episode as it came closer and closer to our modern era. Yeah. So t- so let's talk about, first of all, you know it's going to be black and white. What were your 
did, I guess, did you change camera package? Did you change the way you lit? What, what was your approach to making that episode look the way it did? Um, yes, it was always intended to be black and white. So we created um, a LUT, which is a lookup table, which basically takes your raw footage and gives it, um, shapes it with a, with a kind of look with contrast and color and saturation. Um, so we designed and built a LUT um, that would give us this black and white, but also enable us to come back a little bit with color as we transitioned in. So it wasn't necessarily shot completely in black and white with a black and white camera, but mm. um, our LUT um, was a black and white LUT until like I said, later and later on in the episode. It does enable you to light things a bit differently. I think uh, harder light really speaks well in black and white. And, and yeah. there's an interesting thing, too, as well with, like, um, tonality, certain colors. They don't really um, correlate from color to black and white as well. And so it comes, it's an old zone system. So each color is kind of represented by a tone of lightness and darkness, um, so it's funny because you'll look at things to your eye, especially lighting-wise, and you'll think that it has a certain contrast or a certain tonal range, when in fact um, it's not represented that way in black and white. So it's a little bit interesting when you're choosing wall colors and paint colors and wardrobe colors and things like that that you take into consideration how they register in black and white. So you must have done a, a pretty significant amount of testing for this episode just to get those decisions made as far as wardrobe and props and all that. Um, for, for wardrobe and props, we did, you know, we tried to get things in front of the camera, uh, as often as possible as we're approaching this episode. Um, you know, in episodics, things are pretty busy and we're always Can trying imagine. to find time to, you know, be, don't necessarily have the same luxuries as you do in features where you contest and test and test and test, especially, uh, coming on board halfway through the project. I was always playing a little bit of catch up. Um, but I think it's important to force the issue and make sure you get things in front of the camera because there's nothing worse than being on the day and things not working out or things aren't really um, coming out as fulfilling expectations because it's not really what we all do is manage expectations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not only of ourselves, but our compatriots and our and our colleagues and, and ultimately those studios and our bosses. The series has a lot of... Uh, it, a lot of mood to it. It's dark. It has that softness that I definitely want to talk to you about, like how you got that that nice soft uh, look around it. Um, but it, it lives a lot in the shadows, like I think all horror and kind of scary, creepy things do. When you're filming in black and white and you already have a series that's living in the shadows, let's say, for lack of a better term, do you change the way that you film or light for those darks when you're working in black and white? Um, yeah, we're, you, well, for, for me, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there's an expectation of continuity through the series, but I'm always feeling motivated to keep things fresh and trying to introduce slightly new looks, maybe slightly new camera languages that really are, um, specific to that episode yeah. or specific to a story point, specific to a character maybe, or maybe just specific to, to a mood or a moment in the, in that scene, um, with lighting and camera work and things like that. So um, approaching the black and white um, episode, definitely thought about making things di um, darker. You know, it was period, so nothing's really lit by any kind of incandescent lighting. It's all supposed to be lit by moonlight, sunlight, candlelight. That's a good point, yeah. Um, which inherently makes things darker, things fall off faster, um, and also makes some of the highlights brighter, because if you're next to a flame or something like that, you know, it's inherently much, much brighter than it would be just a few feet away. Which can help you a little bit because you can hide things in the shadows. You know, I think that's one of the things about genre filmmaking is that um, it's it's what you don't see that that's potentially unnerving. Yeah. Uh, so you can use that a lot in those um, period pieces with with candlelight and even stuff that had incandescent lighting, but it wasn't as powerful as you know today. We have LEDs and fluorescence where things are bright for the most part, but. Um, I think throughout history, they, people lived a lot more in darkness. And so it's kind of fun to embrace that uh, and, and use it to your advantage in the storytelling. It's a good point that you didn't, you're working with, within a time period that didn't have incandescent lights. So you are kind of bound to, you know, candlelight, uh, moonlight, sunlight. What kind of actual lights are you bringing in to give you that illusion of candlelight and sunlight and moonlight? How do you make it feel real? Uh, well, it's interesting nowadays with our cameras, they're so sensitive, right? They're so light sensitive. I, I came up with 100 ASA film and, you know, everything was really hot. We had hot lights beaming in, we had hot lights <laughs> on set. And um, it was, you know, on, you know, sets were like Petri dishes. One person would get sick and this, the heat would um, make everybody uncomfortable. 
Nowadays with LEDs, you have a lot more control. You have a lot more control with color. You have a lot more control with dimming. We have, you know, gaffers walking around set with an iPad that's controlling everything wirelessly. Um, I even tease that some of the young electricians don't even wear gloves anymore. I came up as an electrician. I was a gaffer for 100 years. And, you know, everybody had gloves because everything you touched was literally burning. Exactly. <laughs> and um, oh, more of that's fun. Um, but nowadays with LEDs, um, things are a little bit easier. We're not have as much waste. We're not throwing gels away. We're able to adjust things on the, on the moment. Like literally during a take, somebody can just ride, ride a light down in intensity or change its color. Um, so I tend to use a lot more LEDs. At first I was hesitant to embrace that. I was kind of old school. Um, but as they got better and better, I've, the control is, is pretty amazing. I'm not a big fan of the quality always. Um, now they're coming out with more and more Fresnel lights that are LED based. So it kind of goes back to that harder, sharper light that's a little bit more controllable. Um, but normally or you know, initially they've been kind of soft and the color hasn't been that great, but this is changed dramatically over the last couple of years. And, and they're, they're really the great tools. I mean, just power alone, like we don't, we're not running miles of four aught cable anymore. It's all just, you know, extension cords or stingers as we call them. Yeah. Um, so back to our, our cameras being more sensitive, we're not using that much light anymore. So actually able to use candles in a lot of situations. Um, there's double wick, there's triple wick candles that actually give off a pretty big flame and, and make it um, bright enough to photograph, which mm. is kind of shocking having come up in a more traditional photographic environment. Um, there's a scene where the two sisters are sitting on, on a bed talking to each other, and it's actually only lit by one candle. Really? Yeah, surprisingly enough. And, you know, we pushed the the, the um, exposure index of the camera just a little bit, and um, we have faster lenses. So there's little ways that, to help augment and cheat that, that um, single camera lighting or single candle lighting. Um, but What were you I, filming with? What camera? We're using the Airy, um, Airy Mini mostly. XO, or, um, LF? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Airy LF Mini. Um, and Airy Signature Primes. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is the, the show has this really beautiful softness that when I'm watching, I'm thinking like, all right, what is that? Is it a filter or is it something being done post? But all of the highlights have this really gorgeous bloom. Um, how are you achieving that look? That, that look was first designed and achieved by Maxime Alexander, who was the first DP. And he used... Um, rear nets on the back of the Signature Prime, the Airy Signature Prime lenses, which is kind of an old school thing we used to do back in the day. In fact, uh, mm. coming up shooting documentaries and things like that, we used to do that for the, on like the beta SPs and some of the video cameras to sort of give it a more filmatic look. Um, so we did that on this show. Part of my charge... Can you charge, explain to us what that is? Because that is kind of an old school technique. And I, I think a lot of people um, in our audience, they're young, you know what I mean? Like they're just kind of starting out in film and may not know what that technique is. So I'd love to like just kind of get a get a visual of what this looks like. Yeah, so rear netting is taking um, stockings or pantyhose or some sort of uh, material and stretching it on the back of the lens, the capturing lens. So uh, we used to do it with nail polish and we'd actually cut it out and stretch it or a rubber band. And it was kind of a delicate process. And you would sometimes rip the nets or give a run, a run in them when you're handling the lenses. Um, now they have some pretty amazing discs that are magnetic, and you can create um, different nets, different color nets. Um, even oh. some people put fishing line back there to sort of give it a, an anamorphic flare if you want. And it just slaps right on the back of the lens now and magnetically. And so it gives you a lot of quick variations, some quick changes. Um, you can lose it really quickly. So it goes right on the back of the lens, and then you just put the... So you're just layering this on the back of the lens and then putting it right in. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, That's yeah. so crazy. I would love to try something like that. I've never really experimented with it. Yeah, it's fun. Um, there's also been traditionally a specific brand of uh, rear netting. It was a stocking, a Fagal, which I think is Swiss. Uh, I know it's becoming harder and harder to find. So there's people that have stashes that are, again, like the light bulbs. It's funny, some of these older techniques and ingredients we've used um, in the past are, are sort of becoming more and more rare and people are starting to hoard them and keep them. It used to, we never thought about it back in the day. Um, so Fagal is one. I've used some Chanel ones, but the idea is that 
the net is irregular in pattern. It's not like a window screen where it's exactly the same because you'll start to see that in, to some degrees. If you're shooting not necessarily wide open or you have really shallow focus, you can start to feel the texture. Sometimes you'll see it in autofocus lights, um, the texture. So the great thing about the, these stockings is that the weave is um, totally random and it's, it's a natural fiber so that it doesn't really have that synthetic look or synthetic pattern it's the pattern that's the problem yeah yeah but you can still do some cool stuff like i've used really cheap stockings from you know cvs or save on or whatever it is um and just stretched them really tight and made sure that we had longer lenses with shallow depth of field and it just gives that hot blooms on the highlights kind of makes the overall image a little bit more romantic um definitely diffused does it not work as well with wide lenses uh, not with the the um, with wide lenses. You have to be sure to use the irregular pattern okay. netting because it'll become more and more obvious. I see. I see. Now on the show, the bloom that you guys have created is that purely just the um, what's it called? Back netting? Is that what you said? Rear, rear netting. Rear yeah. netting. Is it purely just that, or were you also adding some filtration in the front of the lens? Mostly, it's the rear netting and some atmosphere on the sets, mm. um, coupled with the lighting. Uh, there were there were a few times we used um, diffusion in front of the lens. You know, I tend to like to make people look good, which is sometimes um, counterintuitive with genre work. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, that's the internal struggle that I have. Uh, so and you know, I, and especially like women, I like to make them look complimentary in terms of you know photography and lighting and stuff like that. And I think that's been. Um, harkens back to like my traditional photographic background. Yeah, I, I that is a little bit counterintuitive to horror. I mean, well, I don't know. It sort of is, it sort of isn't because there's plenty of genre films where people just look absolutely gorgeous and kind of by design so that when they do end up getting all chopped up and bloody and disgusting, you really have that contrast. But I guess, I guess there really is no hard and fast rules in that type of work. No, which is great. Like I said before, the lines are really blurring. You know, there's things that I don't think were ever considered genre shows. But if you look at the content and you look at the execution, they really do fall in that category. I mean, look at shows like Cape Fear or, or you know, there's there's ones that you wouldn't think are or horror movies. I think that initially they they kind of got tagged with lower budget approaches. Um but now the audience really like that. You know, it's great. It's great um, entertainment. So we've had bigger and bigger budgets, which make better and better looking programs, films, yeah. shorts, that kind of stuff. Uh, so, again, that's all just becoming blurry, right? Like you can't really put a name tag on almost anything out there anymore, which is great. I think it just opens up the corridor for all kinds of interpretation and expressions. There's a piece of equipment that I wanted to ask you about that I read was used on uh, the show Haunting of Bly Manor is a cine fade. Ha, I knew you were going to ask that for some reason. I, I, I mean, these little, why, uh, these little things, and maybe it's not a little thing, but whenever there's this little trick, like this little camera trick that allows you to do something, I'm always intrigued. And it's interesting to see how these things are being used. So first of all, did, were you using them on your episodes? And if so, can you explain to us what it was? Yeah, I used it a couple of times. Um, it is a mechanism that allows you to change the T-stop on your on your lens seamlessly while you're shooting. And what that does is it changes your depth of field. So you're you can um, use it to pull your subject off the background by letting the background fall out of focus and and letting the um, the subject become the primary focus. You can use it in reverse to let your subject fall back into focus with the background to maybe bring them more into that environment. Let them be more encompassed by the environment. Um, and it works seamlessly, and it's pretty easy to program, and you can do it kind of on the fly. Uh, and it works really, really well. It's a, it's a third-party lens system uh, that we carried. And I forgive me, I can't remember the, the gentleman who owns it and had invented it, but we, we could look it up. Yeah. So, all right. So, I want to make sure I'm understanding it. So, you're able to adjust the f-stop, but without adjusting the exposure. Is that? Yeah, it uses NDs and it and it uses um, an internal mechanism that that helps you kind of blend those two together as you're shooting. Because like a circular um, or a graduated, um, oh, what's the term? A graduated ND, I think is the term that allows you to that allows you to adjust the exposure without adjusting the t the f stop. 
This is sort of the reverse of that. Well, they work in conjunction. So you would basically dial in more ND and the T-stop would open up at the same time. Okay, but the effect is it doesn't look like there's any fluctuation in exposure. Exactly. But but you add, I guess you can get deeper or narrower focus. That's interesting. My camera, I have um, an FS5, Sony FS5, and it has a wheel on it that allows you to, it's basically that that um, uh, variable ND, like in camera, but that only adjusts the ND. It only adjusts the exposure. So I can like go from indoor, inside to outside with the same F-stop and be able to adjust exposure. This is complete, like the, the opposite of that. This oh, that's to- one element of it now, and it works in conjunction with the lens. The lens actually opens up as your ND increases or vice versa. Now that can create a really interesting effect, but something that's so like noticeable. You, it, it's sort of like um, the way that the way that the the Jaws effect has become so synonymous with that movie. And you can't you can really only do it a couple times because it's such a visible you know uh, trick, if you will. So you're you're doing something like this in in your show. How like what is making you feel like a particular scene or a particular moment is warranting? this type of approach? I guess it just kind of depends. I think you can, if, especially when you fall in love with some sort of uh, piece of equipment, you, you tend to find ways and, and ways to justify using it a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's open to interpretation, right? So you can, the more you get to know it, you can start to um, find different ways to use it. You know, and sometimes it's more subtle, sometimes a little bit more on the nose. Um, for me, it was a great tool when you wanted the character to show a little sense of realization or maybe isolation, um, some sort of moment that you wanted to really put a stamp on, you know, and, and show that there's something going on with the character, whether it's internally or externally, um, and, and to shift the, the the norm that you've established in the scene. You know, and I can see using it for maybe some sort of POVs or some sort of realization when people are, are having, you know, maybe a hallucination or they're um, having a moment where they feel uh, isolated in a conversation and maybe the sound would drown out and it'd become, you know, like Charlie Brown, wop, 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 wop. And then you would use the lens to separate them out. You'd use that technique to separate them out. Um, so there's a lot of ways to employ these, these different techniques. I think it's just the fun part about making pictures for a living and telling stories is how can you find ways to use these tools to augment your storytelling? I'm really seeing a shift towards in-camera work now, like more than ever before. I feel like I've been doing this show for, I don't even know, six years, five years, seven, I don't even know. But um, I feel like a few years back, there was so much work and attention in the grade and kind of making everything, like really making your adjustments in the grade. It seems like now people are playing around with tools. I mean, people using vintage lenses, they're using split diopters, they're using things like the Cine, what was it called? Cine Cine that you're using. So I, I, I'm hearing a lot more about these little tricks and tools that aren't necessarily exorbitantly expensive, stuff that just like any cinematographer can get um, and play with. But it's encouraging to see that people are kind of baking in these decisions. It, it's really hearkening back to kind of the, the golden age of filmmaking and cinematography. Oh, I miss film so much. I mean, we used to do so many fun things like baking film and cross-processing and, you know, opening the, the door of the camera while we're rolling to get some, you know, light streaks and flares and yeah. um, things like that. And um, I think that that was the really fun part, except for that you never really knew exactly what you were going to get. And I think it was kind of hard to to answer to, to some of the... Um, some of the bosses, I guess, or the studios. Uh, so I think, but it was fun. It was really experimental. And it was, people started doing that. You know, we used to um, cross-process or do a print before we did a telecine so that there was only so much latitude you could change the look from between color and exposure and stuff like that. With digital, there's so much latitude now too. And if, and if you don't somehow try to protect your initial image and your initial um viewpoint on on the photography then they can change it later anytime so Mm -hmm. um i think we're getting back into that a little bit more um and i also think money is a big issue with visual effects um and then just the alchemy of cinematography is kind of coming back more people are shooting film uh more projects are being shot on film i think there's a little bit of a resurgence uh i i hope that i can get on that bandwagon at some degree i miss those days i miss i miss the etiquette of shooting film you know or it was a little bit more 
just on set, you know, and the way we shot and we would cuts and rolls and we'd stop. And we, every, I mean, imagine every, you know, 11 minutes we had to reload the camera. So every, every so often you get a break. Now we'll just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. The camera operator could have the camera on their shoulder and it's not uncommon for a director to go up and give notes to an actor while we're still rolling. Mm. Um, and I don't think people are as precious with sound now. They're not, you know, you'll have people walking through set. Some people will, their phone will go off, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it didn't used to be that way. Like, <clears throat> it was a lot more precious, a lot more controlled. I think people um, took it more seriously because film was, you know, um, it wasn't, it was a commodity that, that wasn't endless like digital media is now. It's like you just have hard drive after hard drive after hard drive. And it's, it's there's, you know, I can't where producers would, you only got so much film to shoot for the day. So you had to really plan it out. You had to be very succinct with your takes. Uh, now it's like, well, it's just, you know, ones and zeros. Let's just shoot another one. Um, so I, I kind of miss those, those days of, of film in that regard. Uh, and also I kind of miss the nervousness of shooting and then waiting for Telesinia the next day and you get in the room and it comes up and it's like, you know, it's either hero or zero and, you know, and little things like things are in focus and scratches, and chemistry issues and, and all that stuff is, is gone now. And, um, and I find that people don't even really watch dailies as much as they used to because they saw it on set already and they know that what we have and, so that kind of magic and that alchemy is, is lost a little bit in the new digital era. Yeah, um, so I, I like that. the fact that film is kind of making a resurgence. Um, and I hope it continues. I think a lot of it's going to stem largely on, on what can, where it can get processed. Yeah, that's a big thing. Where can you get the film? And where can you get it? Pro- it's, it's hard to find. Like when records kind of made their big resurgence a few years back, Record labels were like they couldn't they couldn't find any place to make these things. And, you know, you'd get in queue and your album wouldn't get made for a year after it was released digitally. So it's like it, it, we're kind of I don't think it's as bad with film, but you just don't you didn't have the demand. So you didn't have the supply, but things seem to be changing a little bit. Yeah, I think every that's... director needs to be an editor. That's that is the key to keeping uh, the the number of shots down is having every director forced to to do like an editing training <laughs> that would Absolutely. change everything well i always say that we're making puzzle pieces right and um and that's my job a lot is to give the editor as many puzzle pieces as possible so that he can shape the scene um it has at least options right that's the key to success anywhere is having options exactly let's take a quick break and talk about mz education for creatives now On MZ, you have hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education covering all sorts of things, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And yes, when you go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, you can buy individual courses, but the best way to experience everything that MZ has to offer is becoming an MZ Pro member. What I really love about becoming an MZ Pro member is, yeah, I mean, I want to know about courses like editing and directing and stuff, but and I probably wouldn't buy individual courses about cinematography or other things. But because I'm an MZ Pro member, I have access to everything, so I'm able to really play with and learn from all of the great courses that are on the site. But the most important thing is that the educators are great. I mean, it's, 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 the courses are important. Yeah, I mean, good, interesting courses are huge, but you got to have a good educator, and that's what you get at MZ. I'm talking about educators that are excelling in their field, that are working in their field professionally. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is on there. Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, does a course. So we're talking about like really accomplished trainers giving you information you all need to know. And the best part is you get 20% off if you type in GCS20 on checkout, 20% off of everything over at MZ. So check it out for yourself, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, education for creatives. Now, let's get back into it. I want to talk about camera movement and kind of your approach to it in the show and just in general. Um, So, you know, in Haunting of Blind Manor, let's talk about the way that you move the camera, what it meant and what it you know, why you made those decisions? Uh, first of all, I love moving the camera. I think it's an integral part of the storytelling. I also think that our audiences um, are so, so sophisticated now that they need to feel like there's some action happening, that they're part of this like poetic dance, right? Between the actors and the camera and the sets. 
Um, and maybe our attention spans aren't nearly as long as they used to be. So if things become static, I think people start to lose interest a little bit. Um, so I like to try to move the camera all the time. I, I like to try to find ways that they, editorially it can be woven together from shot to shot. Um, and nowadays there's so many ways to move the camera and it's, it's, it's fairly easy uh, with all of our stabilized heads, uh, techno cranes, drones, um, and then just basic you know, run-of-the-mill dolly moves. I mean, it's an art form to push the dolly and operate uh, and make oh, it yeah. really, really smooth. And um, I think that we were losing that a little bit with some of the handheld error that we went through. Um, now things are come back, and I think if you, as a viewer, you can see there's a lot of really beautiful cinematic camera moves out there, even on budget challenge shows. Um, so I, I, I'm constantly motivated to move the camera. Um, on Bly, we did it quite a bit. And I think it's important that you set that language up so that when it's time to stop and maybe, you know, show or, or really let the audience uh, digest a poignant moment, that's when you stop. And it, that becomes a little bit even more palpable than a camera move is when you're constantly moving slowly and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're, you've really set the stage for um, the audience to digest maybe a specific element that's in the frame or or a specific vibe that the actors are giving off. Um, so it kind of goes hand in hand, right? Move the camera, don't move the camera. And it's it's a, it's a yin and yang of storytelling. Um, and on Bly, we we did Steadicam, Technocrane, um, a lot of dolly moves. Um, I like a slider to some degree, but there's a, there's a tool called the Dana Dolly, and it's basically yeah. some really smooth wheels with the cheese plate you can put a hat on, and you can put it on um, any length of pipe that you can support. So a slider is something between like two and five feet long. Um, this, you know, I've done Dana Dolly moves that are 20 feet long, and it doesn't take much. Two stands, a couple of pieces of pipe, put this thing on there, and now you're moving. And I find it moves with good wheels. It moves even smoother than a, than a um, slider, and sometimes even smoother than a dolly because it's one person moving the camera and panning or tilting at the same time as opposed to two people trying to work in conjunction. I'm a big fan of the Dana dolly. We use it a lot. I find it better, especially if you have like heavier camera rigs. The heavier camera rigs on sliders, I don't know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work as well. Like you really need to balance your weight so that it, it's, it's um, kind of, it's balanced right to the center of that slider, if that makes sense. I'm not really explaining it well, but it's hard to be top heavy or back heavy on a slider. You you just don't have the same smoothness. Dana Dolly seems more forgiving to me. I mean, that's- I that's agree with you experience. 100%. And, and I think you're right. The bigger the camera, the better. It has that mass that helps the inertia, helps it move in a smoother, slower way. Um, I'll even sometimes set the Dana Dolly at a little bit of an angle and just sort of give it a little bit of a push, like curling or- or something and just kind of let it go and let it let it find its own thing, you know, because it's just sometimes just little tiny moves that we're looking for. Oh, that's cool. So you'll just kind of push it and let it go. Yeah, you know, and you, there's all, there's like a tango so you can make it level, but you make the track kind of sloped and um, you just let it do its own thing. And then you're not overanalyzing, overthinking it or over manipulating it, right? It's just It's just kind of doing its thing and you're just guiding it slowly as opposed to having to force it. Yeah, people don't realize, especially if you're doing a slow move, you really have to know what you're doing. Like, you you really need someone to push that thing. I know you're looking at it, and if you haven't worked with a, you know, if, if somebody hasn't worked with a dolly grip before, you're thinking to yourself, well, how is this hard? I'm just pushing the camera. So what? Yeah. Try it. <laughs> Try it for yourself. <laughs> make it smooth and make it slow, and you will soon realize that you should have spent that money on a dolly grip. <laughs> that, well, I... You said moving the camera slow is, is one of the hardest things to do, especially on a dolly or a slider or a data dolly. Um, even on a techno crane, you know, like sometimes it'll chatter a little bit. Um, and shout out to all the dolly grips out there. They're, they're unsung heroes. I mean, they oh, are yeah. camera operators in themselves. Same with crane operators. Um, same with a camera car driver. Um, they are part of the camera operation. So um, they don't usually get credit for it. But uh, somebody who's really good and is easy to communicate with and has some instinct, I mean, a lot of it's instinct and it's stuff you can't necessarily teach. It can grow through experience. Um, and a lot of it stems from confidence. Like you, you, ha you can't be like, Ugh! and you see it a lot of times too, especially when you have day players come in and they don't necessarily know the language of the show. Uh, and they're like, should I pan, should I not pan? And you feel their trepidation, right? And it definitely translates right through the lens. So um, confidence is a big key. Even if you make a mistake and you go to the wrong place, 
do it with confidence, right? Make it a usable shot. Like, so I, I meant I never, to do that. I promise. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a, you know, that was a choice. And it might have been, <laughs> yeah. not, and everything's so subjective, right? We all have different choices. We see things differently. So I think it's a lot easier to defend uh, an errant choice than it is to defend uh, maybe lack of confidence and, you know, searching around a little bit. Now, a big part of the show, Haunting of Bly Manor, takes place in the manor, obviously. And there are two sets. There's kind of an upstairs level and a downstairs level. Talk to me about the challenges that you face kind of blending those two and maybe some of the behind the scenes stuff that the viewers aren't realizing are actually difficult to achieve with those two sets. Yeah, sure. So so the, the manor itself was built... Um, the upstairs was not only on another stage, it was at a completely different facility. Um, wow. And the downstairs was was at a different facility. So anytime that the story involved people going up and down the stairs, we had to schedule and plan um, to shoot them on completely different days. So there's continuity issues uh, with wardrobe and makeup and, and hair and all those kind of things. Um, but also with lighting um, and camera language. So the way that we achieved that was there was a green screen on the floor, the second floor. And anytime somebody would walk down the beginning of the stairs, they would walk into a green screen. And then we would comp in the, the downstairs elements um, into that green screen. And then on the stage with the, with the, with the ground level floor, there was just a grid above us. But the ceilings were really tall and we were able to use the majority of the stairs, but not all of them. So we just had to plan accordingly and um, plan our shots, plan cut points. Um, using wipes, you know, to try to stitch it together where we would maybe pass through a banister and then we would pick it up on the other side of the banister at the other location uh, and stitch those together. So matching lenses, matching camera speed, the lighting, all those kind of things are, are things that we had to take into consideration. Um, it's not, you know, with once you kind of just accept that that's what we're doing and then you have playback as a tool to, to review, um, it's it's not that, that daunting, really. Um, and you can check it a little bit. I mean, time permitting, everything is, you know, episodic work is um, go, 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 go. Exactly. And there's a lot of instances where they're going up and down the stairs. It's like you must have saw, uh, looked at the script and just thought like, oh, my God, can you just not go upstairs for a second? Like, why does it have to happen so many times? Well, the manor is a character in itself, right? So so you're trying to incorporate all those uh, elements of that character. And, and in doing so, you end up showing all the space and, you know, and there's history through the manor. So you have to kind of, you know, tell the story of its of its arc and its its uh, its history through seeing every nook and cranny uh and luckily it was a large space so it was fairly easy to work in um were you using a techno crane to get like those the the, the moves the exact same uh, it wasn't programmed like like a kind of a um a motion control but um we definitely use techno crane just because of the reach and the smoothness especially trying to navigate the stairs and things like that um it was a really useful tool and it was you know, it's big, so luckily the space just just fit the technocrane in there. I think we had a 50-foot a technocrane in the foyer of the of the manor. Wow. Um, and then we green screen out the doors and green screen on the floor and um, and all those those kind of elements. Um, in some places we had backings so that it wasn't a comp shot. You know, there's costs that are associated to that that we have to take into consideration. Explain that, backings. What do you mean? So we make backings um, outside of windows and outside of doors by using either photographs or stock photographs that represent the environment that you want. And then we usually either backlight them or frontlight them. I prefer the backlighting. It's cleaner. There's less reflections, less spill. Um, and they're usually on an acetate or a, or a vinyl. And um, we can adjust the focus when we print them to make them feel like they're farther away or closer closer towards camera. Um, they can be a little tricky, though, because if there's something yeah. that feels like there should be movement and there's not, like a, like an ocean or a river is, is really tough to deal with because you kind of miss the, the, the movement of that environment. Uh, sometimes we'll layer them. We'll use backings, like a forest backing or a thing, and then put trees in the, in the middle ground and then put some wind on them so it helps to sell the reality of it. Um, it's all kind of in-camera visual tricks, and um, I always say it's not... What's happening behind the lens is what you actually see. So a lot of times you can approach these things in a very lo-fi way. It doesn't have to, you don't have to have the most expensive piece of equipment or tons of crew. As long as it's working in front of the lens and being captured on the, on the camera, 
that's all that really matters. And so you can be really creative and, and use um, different tricks and tools to, to make that sell. Yeah. So you had those kind of poking through the windows and doors. And what is that? How does that help you when you're blending from the upstairs to the downstairs? For in that particular case, it doesn't necessarily help. But um, outside the front door, we did have a backing so that we were able to open and close the front door and not have as many comp shots with green screen. And I see, um, yeah. Not only there's financial ramifications of VFX shots, but also um, dealing with all the green bounce or blue bounce uh, polluting your environment is. Um, it can be a little tricky. I mean, the software now for green suppression and stuff like that is, is pretty good, but it definitely has to take into consideration, like, you know, furniture will start to reflect that, any kind of reflective surface, even people's skin will reflect a green screen. Are you seeing more and more like practical use of those um, big LED walls with the Unreal Engine kind of playing? I, I personally haven't that much, but it's happening daily. You know, it's it's getting better and better daily. Um it's, and, and I think now the shortcoming of that is there's not a ton of content, and the content usually has to be um, developed specific to whatever show you're doing. And that's a, a huge part of the industry that I think is going to grow is, is all these um, kids and people with gaming experience are going to have to start creating these 3D virtual environments. And um, I think right now there's a shortage of that. There's facilities and there's the screens, but there's not a lot of content there. And I think that is definitely the next wave of for creative people is to get involved with that. Absolutely. When you have such a limited palette of stock that you can buy, you know, especially if you're working on a, a big budget project like you are, it's like you can't use the same stock that some other company used or something. It's like you want to you wanna have something unique to you. And yeah, you can make adjustments to it and all of that, but still, people are going to want that custom plate for their own scene, for their own project. Um, I want to talk for a few minutes about the lake. Uh, uh, very important scenes in the show. You're using child actors in these scenes sometimes. And I heard when reading up on this uh, before this interview that you were dealing with some pretty intense weather issues and temperature issues filming this lake. So talk to me about the challenges. So we built a lake in Vancouver um, and the show ran into the winter time. So you can just imagine the weather here. I mean, it actually snows and there's times we showed up on set, there was three feet of snow on set and it uh, was supposed to take place in spring. Um, one of the biggest issues with that is the lake has to be heated to a certain degree for per sag rules. And it's not only for the child actors, it's for all the actors, including the stunt people. Um, and inevitably you have cold air and hot water and you basically have steam. So um, sometimes the steam was all-encompassing, and it was a little bit of a problem. When I got involved, they had only shot the lake a little bit. Um, my solution was to bring in a bunch of fans and blow the steam away and then roll as, as fast as we could as, until the steam kind of came back and engulfed us all. Um, mm. And at first, it was a little bit daunting for me personally. Then I started to kind of embrace it, started to add more atmosphere in the surrounding woods and surrounding area just to kind of blend it all together so it didn't feel like they were just in a jacuzzi in the middle of the of the winter there. Um, yeah. And, and it seemed to actually, in my mind, lend uh, a nice texture and a nice quality to that that, that kind of gave it maybe a more spooky vibe, um, a more isolated feeling. Um, and, I, and I quite enjoyed embracing it eventually. Uh, at first, I was definitely daunted. And we had times when there was ice and ice on the camera and, you know, these... Um, stunt people in the water and the actors in the water. And um, they were all amazing. And it was the middle of the night. Um, but everybody was, 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 was really amazing to work with. And the attitude stayed, stayed good. And, you know, I think morale is a really important aspect to filmmaking. And um, as a department head, I try to keep the morale up. And it's tough when it's 3 o'clock in the morning and everything's frozen and everybody just wants to go home. <laughs> And then, and, there's, and then I turned fans on. Now I'm blowing cold air on everyone's faces. And, you know, everyone's screaming over the fans. And then we, you know, roll and then cut the fans and then do the scene. And um, But I think all in all, visually it worked. Sometimes the process can be a little frustrating or a little bit uh, painful, to say the well, least. Well, who doesn't want, like, a nice creepy mist over a scary, creepy lake? Like, that's perfect. That's, like, exactly what you would want for something like this. I'm actually surprised it was that much of a burden. I would think, like... Nice. Like, this is exactly what I wanted. That kind of creepy, that creepy steam. Well, it got to a point when you actually couldn't see your hand or see the actor, oh, well. you know. 
<laughs> so it was a little bit, yeah. And then there's continuity issues and things like that too. So it was definitely something we we continued to track and, and find workarounds and and then eventually embrace it and augment it. And um, I think in the arc of the story, it kind of works as we, as I personally got more of a handle on how to deal with it. Um, I had more fun with it and less trepidation. Absolutely. I guess, you know, another unsung hero is probably the people that are fanning that atmosphere and making it perfect and balanced. Uh, like we talked about the Dolly Grips being the unsung heroes. Those people that make atmosphere work and consistent and in, in, uh, in work with continuity, that is so hard to do, like controlling smoke and steam. Are you kidding me? It's impossible. And we use ground fog a lot, too, which is using tubes. They call it the tube of death, and it's dry ice with smoke so that it's heavy and it lays down. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's like ground fog. And, um, you know, you get a good special effects team and they're amazing because they're tracking it. They're watching it. I can't always watch everything. And a lot of times, I, you know, it's like, got to go, got to go, got to roll, got to roll. And one of the things I didn't ask, assess at the moment was, oh, what's our smoke levels? And so somebody who's really on it is just completely invaluable. And they love it, too. It's making their mark on the film. And it's, it's you know, it's really indicative of how much of a team sport filmmaking really is. Tell me about your favorite or one of your favorite scenes in your episodes? Well, I quite liked all the water work, and, and um, that was traditionally my, what I came up in. I was, uh, I was interested in underwater photography and stuff like that. So any chance I get a, to, to shoot any kind of water work, uh, um, I get really excited about it. I also like the way the light plays in water and how it changes and bends. Um, so we did some stuff in the tank that mimicked the, the bottom of the lake, um, which was really kind of fun and, and I think visually inspiring for me. Um, and then some of the exterior lake stuff and the grounds of the manor, I really enjoyed shooting. I think um, we did a really good job with lighting and having lighting positions and then using this ground fog and atmosphere. And some of the natural um, elements of that set, like the trees and stuff, really kind of um, added more and more texture to, to these scenes that, that um, was really fun to shoot. Um, I, I liked, there's, uh, I think it's episode six, Dark Henry, which is, um, Henry is the uncle and he has an alter ego. And we did some, um, kind of motion control with a lo-fi system called the Mosis. And, and I had a lot of fun with that. Um, lighting wise, making Dark Henry be dark. Also kind of, uh, doing this twinning aspect with a really lo-fi. It's basically a repeatable dolly and a repeatable head, but it doesn't have, um, booming up and down. It can tilt, it can pan and it tracks on a dolly. It's a straight track. So trying to design and execute some dynamic moves that would be repeated with a little bit of a simple tool was um, fun and rewarding. Uh, and I like the way that it came out in the show and the, the way it delves into his character and some of the struggles he's dealing with uh, internally. Yeah, it, I, I can imagine working on something like this. You always have to play that balance of like, it's a really cool cinematic trick that I know is going to look great and it would be fun for me to do. But also, does it make sense in the story? Like, you kind of have to balance that all the time. I could see that being kind of maybe even a struggle between, like, writers and cinematographers. Do you ever feel that? Well, that and um, and do we have the time to do it, right? Like, mm. it, you know, trying to execute, you know, between five and seven or eight pages a day and then trying to employ some specific, you know, technology and what it takes to program it or or plan it or set it up um, is it is it and the cost associated are um, always a consideration and uh, I think you start to learn to pick your battles and um, there's only certain hills you want to die on and so you want to find something that really is going to make its mark and fight for that and sort of acquiesce on some of the other desires and points. Well, the show is called The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, like we had mentioned, you were the director of photography for episodes six through nine. The whole series is just so good, and it's available right now on Netflix, so you guys can check that out. Um, what's next for you, James? What I know you said you're in Vancouver right now, right? What are you working on? I am currently working on another intrepid uh, Mike Flanagan show called uh, The Midnight Club, and um, it is a 10-episode series at this time, and it's about based on the books of Christopher Pike. And it's about um, a group of young people that are in a hospice and um, some of their experiencing experiences they're having. I can't really delve too much into it, uh, but it's great to be working with Mike Flanagan again. And um, it's great to be back in Vancouver. I quite like it here. The crews are amazing. Um, until recently, COVID has been pretty mild up here. Now they're having a little bit of a surgence and I'm missing home a little bit. But <laughs> mm, yeah, um, it's it's good to 
have a juicy project to, to sink your teeth into and be involved with, with, with really good people and great filmmakers. That's awesome. Where can people go to learn more about you and see your work? Um, I guess I do have a website, jamesneese.com. It's, and then um, IMDB is always a good way to kind of track what people are up to. Uh, and um, I'm pretty open if people ever want to reach out to me. I do get a lot of young students and people just getting into the craft, always asking questions. And time permitting, I'm happy to help and share all my experiences. Well, that's very nice of you. Do you, do you have a, a, a like an Instagram or, or Twitter or something they can reach out to you with? Yeah, Instagram's a great way. It's just jneist, K-N-I-E-S-T. All right, perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes too. jneist, let's see. Let me, I'm going to write it down so I don't forget. Great. K-N-I-E-S-T. Uh, on Instagram, we'll put it there so you guys can... There's an open invite right there to our yeah. Go Creative Show audience. So... It's perfect. James, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was such a fun show to watch and a great interview, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. Good luck to you. All right, I want to thank James Neist, the cinematographer for The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix. You can check it out for yourself. The show is so good. It looks so good. It's creepy. It's awesome. Check it out for yourself if you haven't already. And of course, check out our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Dave Siegel over at siegelsound.com, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. You can find them both at their websites. And of course, more about Go Creative Show can be found on our Facebook, our Instagram, Twitter, and of course, YouTube, where you can get exclusive content that you cannot get anywhere else over there on our YouTube. Of course, follow us on your favorite uh, podcast app. Search Go Creative Show anywhere you get your podcast and you'll find us. Hit subscribe and you will make us all so happy. Give us all a smile. We really need that and appreciate that. And of course, uh, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. Now, if you guys are interested at all in what I'm doing with my production company, BC Media Productions, check me out at Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli. I post a ton of behind the scenes. Uh, clips when I'm on set and also when I'm doing remote production, which is happening more and more in this kind of COVID and post-COVID world. But I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.